for one more week, we're going to hew pretty close to the book because of all the reasons I said last week in talking about the subject of hell and Bildad's excellent sermon, poorly applied, on hell. And in chapter 19, Job gives his response. And what Christopher Ash points out about this chapter that I think is, is helpful and, and unique, it's not something I've seen in a lot of other places, is he says that listening to Job, we see some of the paradoxical marks of a true worshiper. And I was thinking about that. Paradoxical marks of a true worshiper. We uh, fancy ourselves true worshipers, I hope. <laughs> and so what are these marks that have been evident in Job's speech? And are those marks present in us? And the first and the most obvious one but probably the hardest to imitate is that Job, this incredible, extraordinary pain touching every aspect of his life, every fiber of his being, he cries out in pain, he cries out in anguish, he cries out in confusion, he cries out a lot of things, but he never becomes cynical. He always cries out, as one who believes God has an answer. The Job can't see the answer. He doesn't know it. It doesn't make a lot of sense to him yet. The answers that his friends are giving are not satisfactory. But he's not going to be so cynical as to say there is no answer. God uh, doesn't know what he's doing. God has uh, messed up. <laughs> And it's, it's really interesting that Job, even though Providence, capital P, is so set against him, Job longs to be with God, the God of Providence, he, the God who is running this troubled world, the God, for those of us who uh, read a particular fiction book this year, the Tornado God. Who, who brings to bear all of this chaos for his supposedly good purposes. And Job doesn't say, yeah, right. Job doesn't say supposedly good, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Job says, yeah, he does, even when I don't understand it. And that is... Again, I'm quoting Ash a lot this morning. I'm not going to say his name every time I do it. We're working through chapter 15 of his book. Jo uh, Ash says, at the heart of pain, this is the, the paradox, at the heart of pain is the tension between the God who seems to be running this world and the God we hope and trust is actually doing so. The character of the one seems so puzzlingly at odds with the perfection of the other. That, that is the, the paradox. That is the challenge of being a believer in this world. All the things we believe about God, that God says about himself, that when things are going well, we have no problem believing that they're true. We could write out this whole list of great attributes of God. But then, in the dark times, and we're never 
We're never so far from the dark times that we're not either in them or we can't vividly remember them or we don't see one over the hill. (laughs) So in the dark times, we have this other list on the board, which is what we experience, what it seems like is happening in the world around us. And what kind of God would make that kind of stuff happen? And, and so on, on, the, on the one side, we have the... Who would do that to me? <laughs> on the one side of the board, we have God as He reveals Himself in his word. God, as he says, this is who I am. But then on the other side, we have, mm, let me say that a different way, and then somebody took my eraser. I am thrilled. Um, This would be the God we think would run a world this way. Does that make sense? That paradox? You you have a God who says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. A God who says, I am love. The God of all grace, Scripture calls him. You have a God who who, uh, encourages his people, demands for our good, of his people, Hearts of gratitude and thanksgiving and joy. You have all the good stuff about God. And then you look at this world in which we live and you think, what kind of God would run a world this way? And that tension is the pain of the Christian life. That's it. That's the heart of the thing. And when it gets deeply personal, as it does in Job, the personal question that comes out of this is, is God for me or against me? That's the question. That's Job's question over and over again, because nothing else really matters. This this God is real. In faith we say, okay, this God is real. And then we go through all of these circumstances. And so we say, well, as uh, as, uh, Bildad did, yeah, God, this God only acts that way, the tornado God, toward his enemies, toward people who are going to hell. And so Job says, that doesn't sound right to me. Because... I don't think I am God's enemy. And yet, my circumstances suggest that I am. Is God for me or is he against me? And that is, if you haven't read this chapter of Ash's book, he goes through several pages, well, he goes through a couple pages of the kinds of questions we ask that ultimately are just rephrasing is God for me or against me? And it's really all of them start with why. Why did this happen? Why did God do this? Why this instead of that? Why me instead of them? Why the one I love instead of God's enemy? Um, why is 
this God running his world this way, especially with regards to me. And Ash puts the question another way, which is really helpful in the context of the book of Job, because it gives us the answer. What is going on in the heavenly realm to make this happen? And that is the question that we've got to uh, rephrase our why questions into. Because for Job, the answer is really obvious because we got to read chapter one. Satan attacks the glory and honor of of God and God uh, uh, purposes these calamities in Job's life to defend God's honor and the integrity of Job's faith, which God has given him. And so this one's easy for us because it's not us doing the suffering to look at Job and say, yeah, but look, that's why God was a tornado, Job. Look at what was happening in the heavenly realm that you couldn't even see whereby God is vindicating himself. And then when we suffer and we say, why? A great follow-up question is, what is going on in heaven to make this happen? And scripture's clear. Especially in the New Testament, Paul writes this way, Peter writes this way. There is this war taking place in the heavenlies. Satan and his, his, minion, his minions, his kind, are, are lashing out against God. And they are looking to create chaos and destruction everywhere they can. And it's ultimately futile. They will not... Win. God has won. It's not even in doubt. It's not even like God's letting them win for a little while because it's tough for God and would use up a bunch of energy or something to just win right away. No, he's doing something in the heavenly realm with all of this that we're experiencing that is better, that is of a kind with what happens in Job. Not always the same thing. Maybe not even often the same thing. But a heavenly realm kind of thing. The easiest one to point to when you're the one suffering is that he's making you more ready for the coming of his son. I don't know if you've noticed. I actually do know that you've noticed. But you're a long way away from the perfect Christ-likeness that you'll have at glorification. In the kind of spectrum of you know where we were before Christ, I, of where we are before Christ, this is why uh, the miserly churches that I complain about lock up their markers because these were only out one week <laughs> and someone came in and used them up. Uh, where we started, dead in sins and trespasses. And then we think that there's like this massive gap to what God makes us by faith, redemption in Christ. And then, like, I don't know what sign you write for perfection, right? Here's perfect Christ-likeness. Lots of pluses. This is glorification. It's a glory cloud. See what I did there? How far is this? who he's made us to be in Christ at the moment of our redemption to our glorification. How far is that gap? Really, really, really far. It's really, really, really far. We got a long way to go to make us 
on, on the inside, in and of ourselves, what he has made us in Christ, justified our standing, our, our perfection. Now, don't ever confuse that with we have more work to do to get ourselves into the kingdom or to keep ourselves in the kingdom. Or That's not what we're talking about at all. In that sense, this gulf is infinite and it is finished. When it comes to justification, making you saved and ready for the day of his coming, that is done. That We add nothing. And then... As part of God's process of bringing us here to full glory, there's this horrific up and down path that we call sanctification. This is the active putting to death the sin in our lives. Does that sound easy to you? We love the past tense and love some of our sin. We find our identity sometimes in our sin. Our sin is really wrapped up in who we were and are. And God says, no, 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 you are completely, because I declare it, identified with Christ. The old self is buried. The new self is raised. And every moment... Between now and that day, the day of Christ's coming, the day of glory, I'm going to make you more and more like that. More and more in yourself what you are in Christ. Now, that's not a careful way to say it because it's becoming more and more in, uh, reflective of the one we're in. It's not like we ever could stand apart from Jesus and say, I'm perfectly righteous on my own. No need for Jesus anymore. No, that's how we got there was full union with Christ. But do you see what that means? That's not an easy process. And so one of the answers to what is going on in the heavenly realm that a God who reveals himself as all of these good things would run a world like this, one of the answers is he's making you more and more like Christ. Again, let's, I'm going to get very specific. I'm doing this because I'm taking the easy ones, not because these are the ones that is always the case in every single circumstance. When we are at the end of ourselves, because our circumstances, it's like when we were in Hawaii a few weeks ago, and I knew we had all the snorkeling to do, and we we're going to take the kids to, to beaches, and our kids have never been anywhere but East Coast beaches. So our kids don't really know what waves and riptides are. There's just, they're not a real thing on the Atlantic Ocean, at least where, where we've been. And so the, one of the early days of our trip, we go down to the beach at one of our hotels, and it's, it's not even made to be a swimming beach. They have permanent red signs posted, you know, don't, don't do this. Uh, and I take the kids just a few feet, and it's like, we're just going to go a few feet into the water. We're just, we're just going to play in a couple of waves and see what happens. And what happened? I got like thrown by the first wave that like hit me and then I almost like got sucked out into the like ocean and I was like <laughs> <laughs> you spun my mom like a turtle <laughs> <laughs> we'll tell her you put it that way <laughs> the lesson of the waves and the riptide was uh, I, I, there's nothing I can do 
it's not like a, if I could become a stronger swimmer, I'd have been fine in these waves. I went out there a couple feet further than they did. I got picked up, smashed down in the sand, spun like a turtle, and dragged in so much that I, the places I was pulling sand out of later, I didn't know I had. <laughs> There's nothing I could do that would make me able to withstand that. And yet we go through life and we have these trials and these difficulties and these circumstances and these problems and, and we, we submit to God with our mouths and we say the right things and we think some of the right things and yet ultimately deep down we still think this is still within my control. I've got this. If I just do a little bit of this and then and if I can get that person to do what I tell them and I, 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 can, I, I can keep this going. Uh, it's why I get, you can tell when I get uh, snappy, like really quick to be snappy, critical of people, it's when I have a lot else going on because I've convinced myself I can keep all these plates spinning if none of you screw this up for me. If everyone does exactly what I tell them to do and nobody gets in the way, none of these plates will drop. I got all this under control. And I have found that God in his grace, and again, this is a trivial example, but you'll understand it. God in his grace, when I get like that, brings in the tornado children to, to, to bring destruction and chaos to everything that I'm trying not to, right? God shows me, oh, okay, you think you got this? Here, have some more plates. Fine. Here, you want a few more? No. That's part, one example, of what's happening is unless life gets out of our control, we are very much at risk of thinking we are in control. And sometimes God has to bring devastating circumstances. And one of the things those circumstances help do is drive us toward utter dependence and reliance on him. I can't even pretend that there's something I could do to get myself out of this. And so that question, why is this happening, is what is happening in the heavenly realm. But that only matters if you've answered in the affirmative Job's question, is God for me or against me? That is the question of chapter 19. Job entertaining the idea, obviously with a lot of hurt, but not, again, no cynicism. So it's a, it's a thought experiment. It's an intellectual exercise. It's a reasonable question that deserves to be asked and answered. Is God for me or against me? And in the book, he does a good job of reminding us that we... This is when we all start quoting Romans 8, right? And this is when we all know the Sunday school answer and we know the catechism answer and we know what we're supposed to say and we say it even to our closest friends that, you know, I know that God is for me. Uh, And the great thing about Job is that Job is just too honest to let that answer be satisfactory. That answer will not go unexamined. Because Job can't say that <laughs> without feeling like a phony. And I would say, just in the, in the realm of transparency and being good comforters of one another and allowing ourselves to be comforted, which is 
just as hard in many ways. One of the best things we can do is, is tell the truth. And here where Job effectively says to Bildad, I know the Sunday school answer. I can't say it without being phony. I don't feel it right now. I know it's true that God is for me. But for me to stand here and tell you unequivocally, God is for me. While I'm sitting, scratching my sores on my burning pile of dung, feels a little off. And because he won't let that answer stand, because it has to be examined, we actually get somewhere. And where we'll get to is back to the same answer. God is for him. But we'll get there out of conviction and evidence and reliance on the word of God. We won't just get there because we think it's the thing we're supposed to say. Oftentimes, the thing that you're saying, the thing that you're supposed to say, is right. That's why it's the thing you're supposed to say. <laughs> but we need to, we, need to, we need to work to it. We need to remember it, repeat it, and build up the conviction that we want to say it because it's true, not that we're saying it because we think we're supposed to. So Job is invited through Bildad's sermon on hell to compare his experience with how Bildad describes hell. And of course, they're a one-to-one because Bildad preached a good sermon here, right right at the heart. And Bildad then, where the sermon goes awry, invites Job to draw the conclusion that Job himself must be deeply deeply wicked. That's, That's what you should take away from this, Job, that you are the problem. And Job does that. He aligns in this chapter his experience with what Bildad preached about hell. And that's why so much of what Job will say in this chapter is going to match up with what Bildad said in the last speech. Bildad spoke truth about hell. Job affirms that. But, as Ash puts it, the punchline doesn't land. Bildad's application is off. So let's look at the first 12 verses. Let's start with, uh, Andrew, will you read 1 through 6? Then Job answered and said, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Job starts with the rebuke of Bildad and of his friends that as they have argued for the system, as they have first just matter-of-factly, dispassionately, and now angrily because Job didn't agree with them or buy what they were selling, as they defend the system, they have torn down the very one they claimed to be there to build up. And that uh, that is a... That is an important rebuke to receive and to think about personally is those times where what someone is looking for from us is comfort and encouragement. And we use our commitment to the truth as an excuse to tear them down rather than to build them up. Now, it doesn't mean we use untruth to build them up, but the goal is to build them up. 
And how many times in those moments, if we examine ourselves honestly, will we say that our priority was building the person up? Our priority was comfort as opposed to, no, they just didn't want to hear it. Yeah, (laughs) you think? Find a different way to say it. Find uh, more common ground of understanding their experience. Ask more questions. Make fewer statements. All the things we've talked about practically for being a good comforter, do those things. But it is not okay to go to a godly person in need of comfort to provide them additional discomfort and then to walk away saying, yeah, but I told them the truth. That's, that should be incredibly rare. And for some of us, that's our our most frequent uh, go-to or experience in these times. Job's friends see themselves as morally superior to him. He says they magnify themselves against him. Their argument is against him. And and so Job pushes back here in verse 6 that, yes, God is the author of Job's woes. God has put him in the wrong. But what this phrase means is to pervert justice. God has created this injustice, which is exactly the thing Job's friends are claiming cannot happen. Because you're receiving this, you must be wicked. And Job says, no, no, no. God put me in the wrong. The tornado God's doing his tornado thing. (laughs) You are absolutely right which is a great testament to sovereignty. It's not God fell asleep. It's not God wishes he could do something about it. He just can't. No, God brought this about. But the reason you're saying doesn't hold because it is injustice. It is unjust what is happening here, that Job is suffering the fate of sinners. And... Bildad, he says in the book, Bildad can wax eloquent about that fate in theory, but Job can describe it from the inside. That is, Bildad can preach an amazing sermon on hell. Job is living it. Job does not need to hear rhetorical flourishes in the description of what hell is. Job can just think about yesterday and today. And as far as he can see, tomorrow. Um, Karen, will you read 7 through 12? Behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. He has walked, he has walled up my way so that I cannot pass, and he has set darkness upon my paths. He has stripped from me my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone. And my hope, he has pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together. They have cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. The metaphor is that Job is a man being mugged on the street. And he's crying out violence and no one comes to help him. Maybe some of you have had that dream. It's a pretty common recurring Nightmare. I had it when I was a kid for a while. I haven't had it as an adult, thankfully. But the one where you're trying to cry out for help and you can't make any noise. Nobody can hear you. And the image here is that Job is crying out violence and no one helps. And who is the mugger who's mugging Job? God. God. 
which in part answers the why no one uh, speaks up to come help you. Right? They can't. And so this is being, uh, he gives another metaphor, a, a, a city that's under siege where you're just trapped and all the escapes are blocked and the, the way out is getting darker and darker. And the, the king, the ruler of that town, would be, would be stripped of his glory and his crown. He cannot, he cannot rule because there are no options here. There is nothing that he can do. Earlier, Joe used the example of a cut-down tree and said, you know, even a cut-down tree, sometimes if you leave the stump there, those shoots will come out of the side of it. There's at least some hope for some growth, and that's not the case here. God pulled him up by the roots, and there is no hope for him. Uh, Verse 10. And so he counts him as his adversary. This is Job trying to bring the experience, what's happening to him, as an answer to the question, is God for me or against me? Well, based on this experience, this feeling of being mugged without help, of being under siege without hope, of being cut down without a future, I thought I was God's friend. But clearly God thinks differently. And then the, the, the crystallation of it is verse 12. Um, the, the image is supposed to be ludicrous in its scope. And yet I bet you can latch on to this feeling at some point in your life, which is uh, his troops come on together. They've cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. Think about that picture. Troops, the armies, the hosts of heaven, the thousands upon thousands upon thousands go out to war and they encircle the enemy. And the enemy is Job in his little tent. I am so small. And yet you have gathered this huge army around me. What threat can I possibly be to God? Ash talks about the idea that you'd go out camping in a tent. You're all by yourself. And you pull back in the middle of the night to see what the noise was. And it's the entire armies of heaven gathered against you. And that's what Job feels. Um... He says, it's a terrible thing to have one's life invaded and broken down and to have no possible means of escape. Job's whole life feels like that. It is the fate of sinners. It's good. Job's going to be honest about his experience. We cannot get to any real comfort by playing pretend. And so Job is telling the truth in response to Bildad's sermon and accusation. A second thing that he brings up is the isolation that God brings about. And for time, I won't have us read all this, but it's verses 13 through 20, that God has taken away all human companionship, all fellowship, anyone who could help him. He has made him feel utterly alone. It's this portrayal of the loneliness of hell. 
Uh, there at the end in verse 20, young children despise me, my intimate friends abhor me. It is completely alone. And so Job, Job's putting himself out there in response to Bildad. He knows what it is to be attacked by God as a sinner. He knows what it is to be abandoned by all human help. Exhibit A, Job's friends. To be devoid of all human love. Bildad is implied in his sermon on hell This is what's happening to Job. And Job owns that. And he says, yep, that is exactly what's happening to me. What you described, the world that you described, is in fact consistent with my experience of reality. The difference is that Bildad assumes Job deserves it. And Job knows. And we should know, if we believe what we read in chapter 1, Job knows that he does not. And, and now we're back to the system. Bildad can't handle innocent suffering. That's what blows up the system. Whereas Job is able to grapple honestly with this paradox of a true worshiper. The God we know as he has revealed himself and the kind of God we think is going to run a world this way. And he's wrestling honestly with that. And so what happens when you believe this and you experience this and you don't just wash it away, you don't just play pretend, you don't just give the Sunday school answer. If you fight hard to to wrestle honestly with this paradox, what happens? Faith-inspired hope that arises from a clear conscience. It's the and yet. This is the and yet part of our faith. You see it in the Psalms all the time. And you're going to see it here in Job. Bad, 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 and yet I know. Sorrow, suffering, discouragement, people against me, trouble on all sides, and yet I know. You see it all throughout the scriptures, and you see it over and over again in Job, but this chapter is the, the, the pinnacle of that. This is my favorite part of the whole book, is this chapter. And so he starts with this diagnosis, out of which arises a wish, which develops into a confident hope and leads to a warning. So the diagnosis is that God is the one who did this. So verses uh, 21 and 22. Lauren, can you read 21 and 22? Dreadful sounds are in his ears. That doesn't feel right. Mm -hmm. Sorry, it was 15, right? 19. 19. I was like, usually I'm given the wrong number. I'm <laughs> oh, sorry. <clears throat> have mercy on me, have mercy on me, O oh, you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? That was at 21. No, that was good. That was perfect. Okay. Job says to his friends, your hand is striking me. Just as God's did. Can you not relent? Because God's hand has struck me. That's Job's diagnosis. Is Job right? 
Or is that the first thing in the book that Job gets wrong? I'm giving away the answer here. It feels very right, because at one level, we know, yeah, God is... But the language here is critically important. None of this language is accidental, especially in Hebrew. The hand of God has touched me. Flip back to chapter 1. Verses 11 and 12. Renee, what does that say? But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. Go to 2, 5, and 6. Renee? But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. Satan tells God to stretch out his hand against Job. But whose hand touches Job? Satan's. It's the first misdiagnosis of the whole book. (laughs) Now, Job doesn't have the benefit we have of reading chapter 1 and 2, of seeing what took place in the heavenlies. There's a a level, of course, at which uh, God is bringing all of this about for his purposes. But to the very specific question of whose hand is inflicting this pain, Ash says, the hands and fingers that destroyed Job's possessions and killed Job's children and wrecked Job's health were the hands of Satan, not the hands of God. Yes, it was the hand of Satan acting with the permission of the Lord and within the strict constraints given by the Lord. You remember back in verse 1 where he says, only do not touch his life. But it was Satan's hand and not God's that actually did these terrible things. So whose are the monstrous hands that have attacked Job and ripped at him and isolated him and made his life a misery? Answer, the hands of the enemy, the Satan, acting along with the permission of God and constrained by the strict limits given by God. But this is a very important insight. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Um, We don't give enough credit to the power of Satan in this world. Now, it's also true the other side of that coin. We sometimes give Satan so much credit, we forget that he is completely within the constraints of what God gives to him. But uh, Satan's real. Satan's real deal. He's got a lot that he can do. And again and again in the book of Job, Satan masquerades as the Lord and persuades Job that it is God who has turned against him and not Satan who is at work. And we know this Job doesn't. His friends don't. Because, in fact, Job's friends don't have any theology of Satan. They have, they have no place in their mind for this one who is, um, who is captive to God's power, uh, a, a worker of evil, who is bound but not, um, not entirely restrained as God uses him for his purposes. And so despite this, Job, with all these laments, the the faith pokes through from time to time where you see that Job does not want to believe that God has these, for lack of a better phrase, satanic characteristics. (laughs) That God 
could govern a world to make use of those things for our good and our sanctification, Job has a theological category. He's working that out. We have that theological category. What Job's friends are trying to say is that that cannot be the case. And what Job knows, because he knows he's innocent, that the only alternatives are either that, or that this God does actually possess those evil traits. I mean, that's all you're left with. And so Job, as these occasional glimmers of hope pop up in his thoughts, it's because he does not want to believe that the God who enacts with his own hand that evil is compatible with this God. There has to be some point at which there's a separation between the things God is using now for his good purposes and the way God is in his eternal nature. And Job wants to know sort of what will get the last Word. And so he turns back to, if you look, go back to 19, 23 and 24, or back to this request for vindication. Job's always concerned about who will get the last word. Will he be vindicated? Or will it just be that, you know, it is what it is? Job wants to be proved right with God. Uh, Ash, <laughs> uh, talking about 19 and, I'm uh, sorry, talking about verse 23 and 24. He says, uh, Job knows that when he dies, his friends will not be satisfied with his death. They will malign his reputation forever. Under the heading, R.I.P., not, they will put on his gravestone, here lies Job, who was a sinner with secret sins he refused to confess, who paid the penalty for his sins, and the justice of God has been vindicated by his death. May he not rest in peace. (laughs) Their words say he's unforgiven, that he's paying for his sin. But his words say that he's a genuine believer who trusted God for forgiveness and walked with God, and God will make this right. God will vindicate. There is a disconnect between the world he is experiencing and what is true, both about God and here about Job. And that, that longing for eternal vindication, is what leads to verses 25 through 27 and the confidence of Job's hope. Um, Jake, can you read 25 through 27? For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. This is what I'm talking about, the, the jump. That is the Sunday school answer. Jesus will make it right in the end. If you just say that as kind of a whitewash over all the misery in your life, it doesn't do you much good. But if you, like Job, wrestle with the reality of the pain, examine yourself for for where you need to repent, and finding yourself right before God, then go back and remember and repeat what you know to be true, what God has said about that vindication. It's an entirely different experience of reading that verse. It's an entirely different thing. 
Because notice that Job has now gone from, in the last uh, passage, it's what, he, it's what he hoped. It's what he was longing for. Oh, that words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. It's a longing. How does this passage begin? What are the first words of 25? For I know. For I know. Not I hope, not I wish, not wouldn't it be great if, for I know. The Redeemer, we know the story in the book of Ruth, Boaz and Naomi. The Redeemer is that someone who's tied to you by a covenant, who stands for you when you're wronged, who stands for you when you cannot stand for yourself. Um, A lot of translations use kinsman, redeemer. Paraphrases are helpful for that word. Vindicator, champion. And Job is confident that his redeemer lives forever. Before he wanted an inscription on a stone so that nobody would forget it because it would be easy to forget. And so he wanted it written down. Here he knows that his redeemer lives forever. The, the, the reality of the Redeemer is what will help us remember the Redeemer. And God will help Job against God. He will be that covenantal Redeemer. So let me read this. Um, he says, This is not logical by the sort of logic that the religious or philosophical systems can manage. But it is logical because it is ultimately true. It is one of the deep ways in which the book of Job, like the whole Old Testament, ultimately does not make sense without Christ and without a triune God. As Luther put it with his wonderful grasp of the gospel paradox, God loved us even as he hated us. It is not only that the believer is, at the same time, a justified man and a sinner, but that God is, at the same time, judge and redeemer. Um, Job's going to have something better than a tombstone that tells the truth about his situation. He's going to have a redeemer who will stand with him on the last day and vindicate him as belonging to Christ. And Job says this will happen even after death, after my skin has been destroyed. Job understands this is looking out there hope. (laughs) Job expects, he doesn't presume on any immediate vindication But he presumes that he will be escorted to meet God face to face and be vindicated in the presence of God. And it's all very personal. Verse 25, I know, I shall see, my eyes behold, and not another. Job's faith makes it incredibly vivid. Ash says, so vivid that it's almost as if he's already experiencing this long-for vision of God. That's... The paradox of the worshiper. It's, we're not insane. We know we're not in glory, hyper-preterists aside. We're not insane. This is bad. There's lots and lots of bad. And yet, we know what God has said. We experience the first fruits of what's coming. We do look at good things in our lives with gratitude. We do look at forgiveness and reconciliation that could not happen apart from the grace of God. We do look at sanctification, ways where we begin to hate our sin and put off that old self and rise to the new self that could not happen apart from God. And so we take all of that that we know 
proves this is true. And we live with that knowledge in this messy tornado world. So Job says, in effect, I will not finally believe that the monster God is the God who made this world. I know that the God I have always feared and loved is related to me by covenant. I belong to him and his family and his people. And in the end, even if it is after my death, I will see him and he will vindicate me so that it will be publicly seen that I have been a real believer with a clear conscience. That's it. That's the answer, Job. Now, I think Job's really important that Job has more chapters to show us that you can know that answer with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength and still have some really cloudy, confusing, convoluted days ahead. But that is the whole answer to Job. And so I'll close. Just want to, uh, oh, sorry. After that, incidentally, he doesn't leave it there. There is a warning. It's verses 28 and 29. And it's a warning to his friends. Because, as I said a few weeks ago, if you can't believe that suffering can come to the innocent. If you can't believe that that suffering can be redemptive, then you also have no right to believe that there is undeserved grace. And there is great danger for a person who puts their trust in the system, as Job's friends describe it, this immediate justice world, because then there's no unmerited favor. There's no grace that comes to those who don't deserve it. There's only everybody gets exactly what they deserve all the time. And that is an incredibly dangerous place to be. And so Job says to his friends, he's preaching the gospel, until you understand the reality of undeserved suffering, you will never understand the cross of Christ and you will never have a category for undeserved grace without which you are hopeless. And that is an amazing answer from a guy scraping off his sores, sitting on a pile of burning dung who has lost everything. It's not at all trivial. He agrees with the hell that Bildad describes and says, yes, I am living it. But I know that my Redeemer lives. Good stuff.